And yo, last week was a really crazy week in the stock market. And where I stand with things right now, Wingstop is better than GameStop. Now, I'm not saying go out and buy Wingstop stock. I'm not even sure if that's actually a thing. But as everything was going down last week, I was really just sitting on the sidelines, eating some popcorn, maybe eating some wings, drumsticks, ranch. That's my thing because I'm a long-term investor and I wanted to make sure that I stayed the course and I didn't get caught up in this whole fear of missing out thing that causes people to make decisions that they wouldn't normally make. And I saw some of this last year when the pandemic first started. We saw it last week with the stock market and the whole Robinhood and GameStop and the Reddit thread and the companies that lost billions of dollars, the investment firms. This won't be the last time that we see this. I'm sure that there'll be some regulatory stuff that's done to ensure that what happened this past week doesn't happen again. But this won't be the last time where this whole fear of missing out, you better get in on this or you're losing thing is going to come up. And I encourage you to stay the course, whatever that course is. And if you're not on a course, don't scramble to jump on one just because everyone is saying that's what you need to do. And I'm talking about investing in this case, but this can apply to a lot of different things when it comes to the whole fear of missing out. So for example, Clubhouse, a platform that you've probably heard about at this point, everyone is saying that everyone needs to be on. And I've been telling people that, yo, I understand that this is a new platform. I understand that this is what's hot in the streets. But if this didn't fit into what you were already planning, especially if you're a business owner or you're trying to grow your own thing on the side, if this didn't already fit into what you were planning then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. So I encourage you, whether it's Clubhouse, whether it's investing, to make sure you do a little bit of research, make sure that it feels right for you as opposed to scrambling to jump on because everyone is saying that's what's hot in the streets. That can cost you a lot of time. And more importantly, as it relates to this podcast, that can cost you a lot of money. As for today's show, we've got a dope guest. She's a high-performance coach that's helped women get their careers in order and that also means getting their money in order because negotiation, because progress, because doing dope work and getting dope results. And she also positioned herself to take a hiatus from a well-paying corporate job at Google to start a diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting firm that quickly scaled to six figures. So you'll hear about that. You'll hear her story. You'll hear a lot of actionable tips as it relates to money as well as your career. And I'm so glad that I got to have this conversation about the intersection of work and money because this quickly became one of my favorite episodes ever. You probably haven't heard me say that before. This quickly became one of my favorite episodes ever. And a lot of that was because she was speaking my language and she said a lot of stuff that I've talked about on the podcast before, things that you've heard other guests talk about if you've been listening for a while. And I just found it really inspiring, encouraging, motivating, all of that good stuff. So here's my conversation with Dorianne St. Fleur, and I hope you enjoy. Dorianne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. No doubt. And I gave people a little bit of an intro into your background, but I know people really want to hear the story. But we're, we're going to start with, with the typical interview question that people hear all of the time. Tell me a little bit about yourself. So tell the PNB family a little bit about your background and, and we'll go from there. Sure, sure. So it's so funny when I'm and I get that question, I, I like, what do I want to call myself? What are we doing? So today um, I consider myself a high performance coach and a visibility strategist. I primarily work with black women who are high achieving or super ambitious and want to get clear on what the possibilities are in their careers so they can live great lives. I think that's um, kind of how to sum it up. 
I do that through coaching, through uh, facilitating mastermind sessions, um, and uh, leading like training workshops, etc. Um, and this is kind of what I do and how I fulfill my purpose. Um, I like to say. Um, as far as my professional background, most of my background has been in human resources. So I've done HR work. I've done everything in HR except for talent acquisition and staffing. That's like the only thing I haven't done. That's why we're talking today. So <laughs> I'm that missing piece. I'm there you missing go. Piece. There you go. And I've done it for large organizations, small organizations across financial services and tech. I understand why you're doing the work that you're doing now in terms of working specifically with uh, black women, women of color. And we can get into a whole conversation about the appropriate terminology, all of that other stuff where we can <laughs> we can get into that or maybe we won't. But why this particular audience? And it may seem obvious, but there are a lot of different things that you could have done mm -hmm. beyond the day job career. So why focusing on women of color, black women specifically? Yeah, two distinct reasons. And it started off just I am a person in life who likes to take the path of least resistance. And I am a Black woman. I have Black women friends. So I totally understand this experience. And so to me, it was just easier to stick with what I knew when I was deciding six years ago that I wanted to launch uh, Your Career Girl and, and think about coaching and all of this stuff. It was just easier to do that. As I dug in and really started to work with different women, started to do the research and just get my experience up, realizing that if you survey any company in any industry, I'd venture to say in any country, maybe, maybe US definitely, UK definitely, the people who are experiencing their organization the least favorably are Black women. And this I've sounds tested familiar. this, yes, yes, yes. I've, like, I've worked in HR at so many companies, I consult with companies now on diversity and inclusion. Black women are experiencing the organization less favorably. So many reasons why that is. Um, a, a lot of that has to do with, though, just them not feeling like they have the tools, the resources, and like they know how to play the game. And so to me, the data backs it up. My experience backs it up. So this is like my favorite population of people to work with. One thing that I've really appreciated about your background is that you've been doing your career girl, you've been doing consulting, and you've also been working in corporate America during that time. You've held leadership roles. You recently worked at Google, where I'm at currently, and there's a whole lot of stuff that's going on there. How did you manage to juggle both the inside of work and outside of work? Because I have an idea of what that's like, you know, being a podcaster and also working at a company like that. But what was that experience like for you, and, and how did you manage to find that balance? It's been a journey. So when I first started, the reason why I started Your Career Girl back in 2015, it was December 2015, I started it because I was at a point in my own career where I needed help. I was, yes, I was being promoted and I was successful, quote unquote, all of that. But I was at a crossroads where I, f I didn't feel fulfilled. I wasn't happy. And I literally went on Google, which is what we do when we need answers. We go to Google and I was like, okay, I need a career coach. And then I was like, wait a second, I need a career coach for black women. And I was just trying to really research. And all I kept finding were career coaches that were middle-aged white women from like the Midwest and no shade to middle-aged white women from the Midwest. But I wanted to talk about 
what it's like to be a black woman at work, what it's like when people are um, racist and rude and how to juggle all these sorts of things and what it's like to be at that time, an early 30 something person starting my family. Like, what does that, what does that feel like or look like? And I just could not find that help. Um, and so as high performers typically do, oh, there's a, a gap, there's a problem, nobody can fix it, I'm gonna fix it. So I then decided I will be that person. I'll leverage my HR experience, um, the, the experience I had just helping friends with resumes and all that. I'll leverage that and do this on my own. It started out in that way as such a passion project that it was literally just an obsession. So I would go to work um, at that time, I was still in banking doing HR. So I was working like, you know, long hours um, with the commute in New York, adding all that up, probably working like 11 total um, hours a day. I would take care of my baby and my you know husband in the evening and then go straight into this work and be up until 12, 1, 2 in the morning. And just did I did that for like two years, like just this is what we're doing. Then as I started to get more comfortable, I started to find my groove and understand how like you'll burn out that way, Dorian. This is not sustainable. Um, you'll when you're doing that much and exerting that much energy on the business, then the work suffers. So I, I started to find the balance just through trial and error. And then I've been fortunate that I choose organizations that are one okay with me having this business and this persona outside and, and doing all of that. Um, and that also have some level of flexibility so that I didn't have to do like the two full-time jobs working in a day and working at night anymore. So it's been an evolution. There've been times where I just would go MIA for months at a time because I'm just burnt out and I can't do this. Like I also have a podcast and they know I just disappear for months at a time. It's just so much is happening. So I really, it, it's been a journey for me to figure out what that balance um, has been. You said something there with just kind of disappearing for months at a time. And I think to be able to do that, especially when you have a podcast or, or any type of platform really, is you kind of think a little bit about your audience and you might find yourself feeling guilty because people are waiting to hear from you and you haven't put anything out there. But you kind of said, yo, I'm feeling whatever I'm feeling. I need to be out. And there, it takes a certain level of like comfort and a certain level of like assertiveness. And I know that, that can be a, a loaded word as as well, but it, it takes a certain level of uh, let's go with confidence to be like, you know what? I don't really care if like I don't deliver this episode. I don't care if somebody's disappointed. I need to do this for myself to make sure that I stay on the up and up. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the uh, thoughts that have gone on in your head? And then uh, if it was as simple as I made it sound, where does that come from for you to be able to just create that space and, and step away? It is not as simple as you made it sound. <laughs> um, definitely guilty. Like, I, I don't even remember the last time I had an episode even now thinking about it. So definitely guilt around it. But I have learned that even with the guilt or whatever it is, my mental health and my well-being is more important. And I think I've built relationship with my tribe, with my community, that they know that too. And I deliver. When I'm on, I deliver so much I deliver it well that it it tides them over until I'm ready to come back again. So I think it's just about just the reputation, uh, the consistency that I've built up before. They understand the product and the the like what my deliverable is, and they know I'm also I'm still working. So maybe the podcast is where I'm quiet, but my clients, my masterminds, my Facebook lives, my like I'm still working. It's just 
you can't do all the things at the same time. And this is something that I say to the women that I work with. You can have it all. I believe that. I just don't believe you can have it all at the same time. And so I practice what I preach. And so I'm not trying to run myself ragged trying to do 10 things. I'd rather do a few things really well. And if I'm cycling, if it's in a rotation, that's fine. I think the, they, my audience, they know me and they understand what to expect. And, and so it's, it's worked itself out. But yes, of course, I feel guilty. I feel like I can't be consistent. It's just the other things I can be. It's just the podcasting. Like I really respect you and people who can do this consistently. I'm like, ah, I can't keep up. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. And I, and I had to scale back because this was previously a, a weekly podcast. And uh, when I moved to a seasonal format a few months ago, I decided that it needed to be biweekly. And if I didn't do that, then the past couple of months would have been even more rough than um, what they were. And I found mm -hmm. that in order to deliver the level of quality that I know that I'm capable of, I needed to actually produce less content in this form so I can focus on some of the other things that I do really well in terms of like how I do research and all of this other behind the scenes stuff that the average person may not notice, but I notice it, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what's really important. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. I like that point um, around like, you know, what's basically what you need to do in order to deliver excellence. And so I mentioned before, I work with high achievers. I am a high achiever. I care about high performance. I have high expectations that I, it, I'd much rather like dripping it out. It's now biweekly or monthly or whatever it is. And it's excellent than rushing through it just to say, oh, I checked the box. I did it. And I know we're talking about podcasting, but this is how I approach my career. This is how I approach like everything. Yeah, it may take me longer to save this amount or to get out of debt or to do all those sorts of things, but I care about excellence instead of medi being mediocre. And I think that got lost along the way. I think culturally, like we got to check the box. How many times, like people care so much about quantity and they forget about quality. And that's just not how I roll. Speaking my language, you definitely speak in my language. And uh, an another thing is you got to a point where you ended up walking away from corporate America and making that transition. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the uh, thought process leading up to that? Because for some of us, we go back and forth on that for years. And then especially when you have a job that's paying you decently or paying you well, those those handcuffs, that makes it more difficult to uh, take that leap because you think about the benefits and all of that stuff that you may not have to worry about when you're in corporate America versus when you go out on your own. So can you talk about like how you got to a place where you were comfortable making a leap and, and what that looked like for you? Firstly, I'd like to say I, I call it a hiatus. I want people to know it's, it could be temporary. And so I really... I'm to me, I know financial freedom means so many different things to different people. Uh, for me, it's about choices. And so I'm grateful that I have the choice to step out of corporate right now. But if the right opportunity comes back around in like a year or two, y'all might see me back, check my LinkedIn, and I'm like now the director or the head of whatever at such and such company. So I think the I, I'm not a, one of those people who hate corporate America or who hate that nine to five life. Not at all. I think you can. It has afforded me so much financially, uh, professionally, personally. Um, and so I'm not opposed to it. And so I don't I haven't left it per se. I'm just on a little break is what how I like to say it. With that said, it was really years in the making, I'd say. 
for me to make the leap. It, it started definitely as a mental shift in a decision. As I mentioned, I'm not anti nine to five. So I really was fine with continuing to have your career girl, the coaching, the work that I did, and also have my nine to five. I was getting promoted. I was, you know, having great opportunities. And so why not? Why not have two six figure checks are better than one, right? So I was totally fine um, doing that. But there came a time where I really thought about impact. I'm so impact driven and I want to make as big and as much of an impact as possible. And I realized that with the work that I want to do, the time constraint that the nine to five was having um, wasn't allowing me to do that. And I realized that I wanted to branch out. So yes, I've had your career girl for uh, five years, I guess, coming up um, this month now. And I've been able to help women on that individual level. I really felt this calling for me to now expand the scope and do it at an organizational level. And I wanted to consult with organizations around diversity and inclusion, career development, all of that. I can't do that with a nine to five. And so to me, it just made sense for this season in my life and in my career, I can't have the nine to five, so I need to branch out. And so it was kind of that mental decision that happened first. And then it was the practical stuff. So I made sure I was complete. My, you know, our family is completely debt free before we moved. I made sure that we paid up all of our housing for like a year, like we're paid up through April at this point. And we, we paid like a year and a half worth of rent. We moved from New York to California, Google, um, for that relocation to Google. Um, and so we sold our house in New York. We got everything in order. We paid up. Like I did those practical steps. Um, got tuition, uh, got my daughter out of a school with tuition and, and got now she back, you know, in public school doing her thing there. Like just those decisions that make people fearful of stepping out. We took care of it so that that's not a thing. I don't need to be worried about how are we going to do this? How are we going to make ends meet? We have savings. We have all of that stuff situated. And then I actually just did it. I think the uh, issue with a lot of people, whether it's personal finance, whether it's careers, whether it's fitness, whatever it is that you want to do that you're not doing, is that sometimes the next step is just to do it. How many times are you going to plan it? How many times are you going to think about it? How many times are you going to talk about it? It's just do it. And so I set a date and I'm, I'm very grounded uh, spiritually. And so I prayed about it, felt good about the date and did it, <laughs> um, honestly. And because of my obedience and, and all of that, literally the, my last day of work was June 1st. And by June 5th, I already had my first consulting client and have, it's been nonstop since then, like literally spun up a whole nother six figure business in six months because of just the, the strategic planning and the obedience and the taking the steps and, and all of that. So it's been a whirlwind. It's been amazing. It's been hard work. Um, I like to say that because people, I think we romanticize entrepreneurship and it's hard, harder to me than my nine to five. And yeah, but that's kind of the, the journey there. I love that. And the common thread through it is there is this achievement orientation that you have. And where does that come from for you? Just uh, recently started working with a new therapist. So this all this stuff is top of mind for me. So thank you for asking. I think it comes from uh, just childhood. My parents are Jamaican immigrants. They came <laughs> to here with, you know, the story. I had $2 in my pocket and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so they started, you know, and so that just instilling in me just to be great and to do things. My father used to always say to me when I was growing up, like even still says to this day, like 
As long as something is written in English, the language you speak, you can do it and figure it out and understand. Like, don't tell me you can't do it. Don't tell me you don't know. Like, you can learn it, you can figure it out, and you can understand what to do. And I just was never brought up with, like, you can't do something. Like, even now with my daughter, she's six. She was trying to um, do something, a, a game or something the other day, and she came in and she was crying. I can't do this. It's too hard. And I just literally just without even thinking, but we can do hard things. So what do you mean? This is how I talk to my six-year-old. What do you mean it's too hard? You can figure this out. What are we doing here? And uh, we sat down. And it was something so basic. I can't remember what it was, but I just approach life in that way. And so I really care about my core that I have core values around achievement and validation and um, internal validation, external validation, recognition. And I'm not ashamed of that. that. That gets me going. That motivates me. And so, yes, everything I do, if I want to be aligned with my core values, there is this level of how does it fit in with my achievement? How does it move me further? How does it um, help me be this high achiever that I want to be? Yeah. So I love when people come on the podcast and they say things that I've said on past shows that validation, I'm getting it right now. I'm like, I've been telling y'all, I've been talking about, I've been talking about the importance of values. I've been talking about how therapy, mental health, how all of those things play into how we perform at work, how we spend our money. So I'm, I'm really glad that, that you mentioned that. And I appreciate the, uh, the, uh, candor. Now, one thing I really wanted to talk to you about that's related is this intersection of personal finance and career slash professional development. And we were talking about that a little bit before the show, because for me, I'm 100% debt-free, and I got there in 2018. Uh, I paid off my car note a couple of years early. I'd gotten rid of credit card, like thousands of dollars of credit card debt. And people always expect that there's some type of crazy story where you know I ate ramen noodles. I was eating these, these Wonder Bread sandwiches for two years. I was driving a 15-year-old car. But that wasn't my story. A lot of how I was able to pay off debt and put myself in a good financial position was by making good career decisions. So I was curious how you see that intersection of personal finance and what you know from the career progression professional development world. Absolutely. I love talking about this and and kind of what I was talking about earlier before the show was that part of the and you know no shade to you and personal finance people but part of the issue i have with this industry overall is that they make it seem like there's a one size fits all process so everybody save 15% of your check every week do this do that eat ramen noodles Anybody who knows me, I am not a ramen noodles, Wonder Bread sandwich type person. So we going on fabulous trips. We got our nails done. Not right now. This quarantine got me looking busted. But um, we take care of ourselves. Like we have fun. We do dinner. We do all of these things. I'm not willing to give that up. <laughs> Sue me. Like I'm just not willing to give that up. And so, yes, I had a plan to be debt free and, and all of these things and save for my daughter's college and all this stuff but not at the expense of my comfort. Sorry. Like that's other people's journey. Fine. Just not mine. And so I then realized that it wasn't about depriving myself. Then it was about making as much money as possible so that I could pay off this ridiculous student length uh, debt that I had. And so that we can make sure that we're making the right decisions and have money saved and do all those sorts of things. And so for me, because the entrepreneurship for most of my career, I've been doing entrepreneurship for five years. I've been working for 15. So most of my career, my job was the source of income that I had. And so I had to figure out how to optimize and maximize that. And so 
I was a person, I don't save every paycheck. Instead, these bonuses, I, I happen to, in all of the jobs that I've had, there was some bonus that we get. I save 100% of my bonus instead for the whole year and just rack that away every time. When it was time to buy a house, I'm using uh, bonus money that we had. We're using sign-on bonuses, just things like that. Maybe cash out on some equity that we had at a, at a, at a company and there goes the down payment for the house. So it, it just I kind of took a different path than quote unquote, you're supposed to in the finance, in the personal finance space. And it worked for me and it, it didn't require me having to deprive myself. Yes, there's a level of discipline and, you know, the B word, the budgeting. I still haven't really gotten to that yet, but yeah. I have an overall budget like, okay, here's the money. Don't spend more, pay your bills and then don't spend more of this and save the rest. But I can't do the line by line. I've tried. Can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but, uh, but I figured out what worked for me and I leveraged what I had. So I am big on negotiation. I negotiate till the wheels fall off. Like we not playing around. Even when I was coming, um, the relocation for, for Google, like when I tell people like how much temp housing we had and how much this and that, they're like, really? How do you? and it's like, you don't get what you, you have not. Cause you ask not, you don't, people don't ask for these things. And so I just mm. think about that with not having to pay rent or mortgage for that amount of time, that was money that I could put in the bank and now yes. help me quit more quickly now be in this position where I could quit my job. So I just leverage the tools that I have. I ask for more. I negotiate. I find high paying roles. Um, I think about different and creative ways to still get to the same outcome, but doing it in a way that feels good for me. Mm. Hands raised, emoji style. <laughs> I got the finger snaps going on back here. Negotiation, one of my favorite topics. And particularly this season, it's 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 come up a couple of times now. So for you, I know you talked a little bit about your upbringing. So have you always been a negotiator? Because I've heard that, you know, there are certain cultures where negotiation is just a part of what, like haggling is just part of it. Even in situations where it may not make sense to haggle, there's still some <laughs> haggling that that goes on. So has that always been something for you or is that a learned muscle that you've developed more so as you went through your professional years? Definitely a learned muscle. So I didn't start negotiating until maybe four or five years into my career. Mm. Um, I'm grateful that I happened to, my first job was at Goldman Sachs. I was on the, the, the trade support desk. And so fresh out of college, my first salary was $50,000 a year. So in 2005, that's, that's good. Like no, no kids, no debt, no, well, student debt, but you yeah. know, no mortgage, none of that stuff. And 50,000 off the gate, still living at home. Like, so I started off at a good pace. Um, and so because of that, I thought I was rich. So I didn't ask for anything else. Like, it was just like, oh, I'm, I'm balling out here. And so um, I didn't ask or didn't know that I could ask. And so it wasn't until I really started to understand how much money I was leaving on the table and about different opportunities five years in that I actually started to do this. And I started, didn't get anywhere. People said no, you know, whatever. And I really just said, this is a skill that I want to get better at. This is something that I want to master. And so I just really, for the past 10 years or so, ratcheted up in the uh, roles that I take, I turn down roles, I, I push and I ask again and I figure out how can I maximize my earning potential because I realize how important it is and I realize the, the opportunities that I'm able to have in my life because of the money that I'm able to make. And I hate to ask this question, but I'm going to ask this question because I know how I felt when I answered this question myself. How do you think not negotiating early on impacted you? Because Yeah. For those who can't see this, which is pretty much everyone, because we're on video here uh, chatting, I saw the eye movement, a little bit of the eye twitch. 
I had a very similar experience where I took a job and I was like, this is more than I'm making now. So fantastic balling only to find out that someone was making like $20,000 more than me when they previously held the position with less experience than I had. Mm -hmm. And I I know that there's kind of also a a stat that floats around out there that the difference between negotiating $5,000 more on your salary at the beginning of your career is like half a million dollars over your lifetime or something like that. So I was curious, just given where you are now and looking back, how do you think not negotiating early on impacted you? So it's it's interesting. So I think the impact is twofold. So there's a financial impact. Obviously, I could be making, when I left corporate, I could have been making so much more if I would have started out negotiating. Thankfully, I think I've bridged the gap because once I realized that I was leaving money on the table and um, I started doing what I needed to do. Like I, I wasn't getting $5,000 raises. I was getting like 25. I was getting like, you know, double my salary. Like, yeah. so I, I think that I caught up at, to, at, into some extent, but there's, there's absolutely a financial implication, but I think more importantly, honestly, and it's going to sound weird. There's a confidence implication. Like the fact when I think about how, like, I just, I cringe because I'm like, Dorian, like whatever they said, you just took it. Like you didn't, even if they didn't give you more, you didn't even ask or stand up for yourself. You didn't even say, hey, I'm getting a promotion. Why does no raise come with this? Like you just took whatever they gave you. And so I just think about where I was mentally, emotionally, maturity, confidence wise back then to just do that. And that's the part that really makes me cringe. I think when people talk about Dorian, oh, you negotiator, you coach women on how to negotiate and all this kind of stuff. They must have it all together and they must, you know, be perfect. And it's not that. It's just we really think about our confidence and we mute our inner critics. And we, even though we may feel uncertain, um, we're still moving forward. I always give the the, the visual picture of like um, a duck, like on top of the water looks cool, chilling, all of that. And yep. below the surface, it's paddling and kicking and it's going crazy. <laughs> That's how I am. Like I'm asking, I'm doing that. I don't, it's not that I don't feel scared, but that I just, I, I care more about my confidence. I care more about speaking up for myself. I care more about the money that's being left on the table than letting fear hold me back. Um, And so that's just something that when I really think about the implication, that's where I anchor onto. I think that confidence part is really important. And it's not something that I thought about consciously. But as I'm hearing it now, I'm like, yeah, there is a an impact to that because I think about situations where I didn't negotiate. And then afterwards, I'm wondering, could I have gotten more? Like, what if I did? Get, and you've always got that there. Like, could I have gotten more? I didn't even ask. Even if what you initially got seemed like a strong offer, you could still ask for more. And I think that there are a couple of situations in particular, and you can tell me if there are additional ones, but I think of a couple of situations in particular where people really have an opportunity to negotiate. And one, you interview for a job and you get an offer. So that's one. The other is when you get into performance review season. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you get questions like, how do I just go and ask for a raise? And I will say at a lot of companies, you can't just go to HR and they just raise your salary. (laughs) There's a performance management cycle. And you probably know this from working in corporate America. You you don't just walk into your boss's office, close the door. I mean, some people do. Some people do. Some people do. Okay. (laughs) And we could talk about that too. Are there other situations in a professional context where you think people perhaps miss out on the opportunity to negotiate going beyond when you're considering an offer for a new opportunity or when you're in performance review season or are those the main two? Those are absolutely the main two. If I had to add anything, I'd say like, if you are 
doing something different and it's the company at the company's request. So if I think back to my career, there was a point where I was living in New York and they wanted me to move to Salt Lake City, Utah for um, a few. Yeah, that was an interesting experience. Oh, my goodness. Um, For a few months to help build out a team there. And while, yes, my role is the same, you want me to uproot my life, my brunch schedule, all of this to go (laughs) to Salt Lake City, Utah. (laughs) Um, We need to talk about some coins. And my dad, he coached me through that process, like, you know, paying for. And so it didn't end up being that they gave me a raise. But what they did do for every month that I was there, paid for a ticket for me to come back uh, to visit New York. Um, I had per diems on food, like just all this other stuff that added to um, upgraded my rental car. So I was balling out there, like just different things to think about. Um, I think finding ways where they're asking you to do something, to move somewhere, to take on a new project or whatever it is. I think there's opportunities if it's not salary, but finding some monetary equivalent that you can negotiate as well, I think would be something else um, that I would say. But the main two are what you mentioned. And when it comes to salary negotiation or let's say offer negotiation, because we anchor so much on salary, but as you know, compensation is a lot more than just that number. And and they could give you a salary that looks fantastic, but you don't negotiate those other things. You realize your benefits are trash. This other Mm -hmm. thing is trash. The 401k contribution is trash or you don't get one at all. There's all other sorts of stuff you have to think about. So what what are some of the areas that you see in, in terms of working with your clients where people perhaps miss out on the opportunity to, to negotiate because they're focused so much on just that number and then they don't get maybe that number that they want. And they're like, oh, well, you know, this is what I can do for salary, but maybe they've left other stuff on the table. So where do you see people kind of have the most opportunity where they may be missing out currently? For me, this is a big one for me that people totally ignore is vacation days. And so even if this, the policy is, let's call it 21 days or whatever it is. So even if it's not written in, I like to talk about, well, I already have this trip that's planned. Um, it's uh, it's going to be a week and a half. I want to still go there and I don't want it to count for my balance. I've done that so many times so that it doesn't take away from the balance that I have. Um, I'm not when people say, oh, I haven't used my vacation days. I look at them like they are speaking another language. I use everyone. I go over negative days like <laughs> you need to take your time off. <laughs> Um, So that's a big one. I'd say equity is huge. If you work for an organization that does provide equity grants or or something like that, asking for what can be like, what are the options for that? And to me, as I think about even, you know, startup culture and tech and how how big it is now. These companies, like, this is how you really can build some wealth. If you get in on the ground floor on some the next big thing, and in five years they go public and valued at, like, $30 million, like, that's money that you have. And people just don't even, there are people who don't even understand equity. Yeah, they gave me some options. I don't even know what that means. Pay attention. This is money. <laughs> this Man. is money. Pay attention. Negotiate that um, to the equity. I think bonuses are huge as well. And don't discount that. I love that you said offer negotiation because it really is this total package that you should be thinking about. What are the, yes, the salary is one thing, but what about the bonus that people just completely discount that? That's a big lump sum. That has financed a lot of my life has been off of these bonuses and and all of that. That's a big um, area to pay attention to as well. So I'd say monetary wise, those are the areas, but then even some non-monetary things, when we get back in person, just like office space, like equipment, the kind of computers, or I want two monitors versus one, or I want this new thing. Like 
you can all of this stuff. What is going to make you feel good about the work that you're doing? What will make you feel comfortable? And even now in this remote environment, like before, I, right before I left Google, I had I was talking to my manager about like I need a chair. You guys had me working from home in COVID now, and my back hurts. I need a new chair. They said no, but then literally when I left. The whole company got like a thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was thinking about. It. I was like, this chair I'm sitting in right now, this desk I'm at, this is all that one thousand exactly, dollars. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I admit, but I'd like to think my request kind of uh, <laughs> started Spark that. that. But, but like, I think of anything. I'm doing this work for you. I'm good at it. You have told me that you like what I do. How can we make sure I'm comfortable? And so I just think about all of the different, um, whether it's money or whether it's not all of the different things that I can negotiate and ask for. Primarily though, I'm talking PTO, I'm talking bonuses, I'm talking equity at this point in my career, not just about salary. I've negotiated where I've taken a dip in my salary, but my bonus percentage and my equity was just too good to be true. And when you think about the total number, it was way more than if I was just anchoring, you got to pay me this on my salary. Like that's, no, there's other things to think about when you think about your total compensation. I love that. And I got to ask this because it's another super common question that you probably get. So let's say somebody gets an offer and it's it's a strong offer. And they're like, well, they hit the number that I had in mind, but you're telling me to ask for more. Do I ask for 5% more, 10% more? Is there a rule of thumb? So what do you say to people when they find themselves in that situation? Uh, because it, it could be with salary. It could be with equity. Like it was, it was good equity. It was mm-hmm. more than I expected, but you're telling me to ask for more, even though I'm happy with it. So how do you advise people Think about making that ask when they're satisfied with the initial offer, but they really should ask for more to see if they can get more. Mm-hmm. I, the first part of the question is, yes, you should still be asking for more. And it's good if your starting place is already from a, a part of like, oh, well, I, I'm happy with this. I'm good. Um, great. So if they say no, you're still happy. But why? Like you should you have not because you ask not. You don't even know what could be the next step. And so, yes, absolutely, you should still ask. Now, how much you should ask, I think, depends on so many factors. But without knowing the specifics, I'd say, yeah, add on a little 5%, 10% max, I'd say, above what they came in with. And then we can play with that middle room and figure out where where we land. Um, always ask for more, especially if they've come in with this. And I, when I, how I coach women through this is about really waiting until as long as possible to even start talking about numbers and specifics yes. and things like that. You want them to, I, I always, all of my references have to do with dating and all. I'm happily married, but I somehow I just really latch onto the singles life. It makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> and I just tell them like, think about if you're dating, you know, you're dating someone the first date, don't get, you know, don't get in my business. You're not doing too much. We're getting to know each other. And these phone screens and these first and second round interviews, we're still, you're courting me. You're still getting to know who I am. Don't ask me to marry you and want to know my business, uh, my medical records and all these things before you really get to know who I am. And I feel that way, the same thing with the salary and how much you want to make. I don't know you like that. I don't know this role. I don't know what we're doing. I don't know if I even like this place. Why am I giving you all of this information? And so I'm very like coy and, and kind of like playing hard to get when it comes to that because we there's so much that you need to know. I want you to be obsessed with me, in love with me, ready to put a ring on it. And then we can talk about the specifics and, and all of that. So with with all of that in mind, just waiting till the end. And then at, by that by that token, by the time you're there, Okay, what can we do to keep you? We've gone through this whole process. 
I love you. I want to marry you. Like, all right, 5% more. <laughs> Let me see what I can do. Like you want to get to that point where it's like, I'll work to make this work, to make this happen for you. Um, and so just having leverage throughout that time, you just wait until you can. And then yes, ask for more. And then if they say no, again, the you're already at a place where the number that was offered you're happy with. So what's the harm? What do you lose? I think the issue is people think that if I ask for more, they're going to rescind the offer. Yes, I was waiting to ask you. I was waiting to ask you about that. (laughs) And I've seen some of my clients where people have done that, but that's like out of the hundreds, thousands of women that I've coached, that's happened one time, one time. And that company, do you really want to work for a company? And she didn't even negotiate. She just said, can I have two days to collect my thoughts and come back to you? And they emailed her and said, no, forget it. Okay, that company's trash. And that's good that they show you who they are right then. Um, For the most part, they are not going to rescind the offer because you are asking and you're negotiating like that. That just does not. That's not the norm. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen, but that's not the norm. And so get that lie out of your head. Like get that lie out. You don't have to just take whatever you get. This whole working situation, I think, is another lie that people don't they don't understand. It's a two way street. As much as you're getting the check and the benefits and the prestige of that company, they're getting your intellectual property. They're getting your work. They're getting your ideas, your creativity. It's a two-way street. Understand what you also bring to the table as well. And so you're worthy. You're worth it. You deserve to be there. They're telling you that we want you to be here. Don't come into it as if they're just getting everything, uh, you're just getting everything and they're not getting everything. Know your worth, know your value and ask the tough questions. Especially this year, because another thing that I've seen come up is kind of this fear that, well, we're in a pandemic. And so, you know, the company may not be doing as well and, you know, they're struggling or I read a story or I, and, and my thing has been, I don't care what's going on at the company. That doesn't change your value. But I'm seeing more people, especially now, because mm-hmm. we're in a pandemic where they're willing to take less money simply because we're in a pandemic when their actual value hasn't changed. But I will say that I, I understand where if you're in a situation where, let's say, you're unemployed and you really need to get back to work, still negotiate for yourself. But I, yeah. but I understand where someone may feel like, I need to take this job like right now. And maybe the plan is I take this now and I plan to make a pivot in a year because, you know, people do that too. Like I I just need to have money coming in. So I understand that. But I do see a lot of people get trapped or get that feeling of, ah, like if I ask for like, it is a pandemic and I'm like, I don't care that it's a pandemic. Like that is the pandemic does not determine your value. And there will come a point in time, hopefully sooner rather than later where this pandemic ends and then what? And then on top of that, the company would have no problem letting you go because of the pandemic. I think my perspective on this stuff is kind of biased by the fact that I've been laid off before. So I could Mm. care less about companies now. I I'm not loyal because they weren't loyal to me. I work. I remember I went into work. uh, We, it was like company wide layoffs and I was in HR. So I was part of the process and helping of the people getting laid off. And then at 4 PM, I get called up to the office to get laid off. You made me work all day. You made me lay off the people and the emotional taxing and the labor that comes along with that. And then you laid me off at the end of the day. I will never forget that. And so when people talk about, oh, but I just feel bad and I want to be loyal to the company and I care. I I just don't. It's like I can't compute that. They don't care. And when I say they don't care about you, not meaning that they treat you like crap. I don't mean that. But in the grand scheme of things, 
they're business make, they're business. making decisions. Like if they, you could have just had a baby, you could have just like bought your house, and they their budget dips. They got to let people go, <laughs> and so you cannot enter into this relationship or this dynamic in that way. Like you have to make decisions that are best for you is the first thing. And then, yes, we may be in a pandemic, but they still need this work. <laughs> they still need this stuff to be done. They still have a job posted. So you just asking, if they can't afford it, we can't afford it. It's out of our budget. You asking the question does not take away the role. It does, they're expecting. I think the, the stat is something like 80% of recruiters expect to enter into negotiation conversations through the process. This is not a bad thing. They're expecting it. It's all in how you do it. It's all in how you package and position the ask, right? But it's not a bad thing. We got to stop feeling like we're, we're being greedy or we're doing something wrong by asking for more. Ah, I love this so much. And we are rounding toward the end of the episode. And I still got like four things we didn't even get to, and we're not going to get to them today. <laughs> Is there a, a parting thought, whether it's related to negotiation or some of the other stuff that we had intended to talk about that you'd really like to leave people with, particularly now as we're kind of at the end of one year and preparing to go into the next? Yeah, I think my parting thought and something that I'm always preaching to whoever will listen is just to remember that success is inevitable. I think that we mm. we get caught up in thinking like, oh, it hasn't happened yet or such and such has done this and I haven't. Your success is inevitable. The only variable is time. So my journey may take longer than yours. You may do something quicker than mine. Fine. The variable is time. But we can we will all be successful if we get clear on what we want and we are consistent in making it happen. You can save the money. You can get out of debt. You can get that promotion. You can, you just have to find your sweet spot. And so to be defeated and knocked off every time you're told no, every time you feel like you've been rejected, every time things are not moving as quickly as you would like, you're just doing yourself a disservice. Like you all, we have a family uh, motto in my family. And we say at the end of the day, we always win. And that's just what it is. Yeah, we may, we scuffle and there's problems and drama, whatever, but we winning. We still winning. We're still successful at the end of the day. And so just remembering and moving towards that, I think, shifts the perspective for me. And hopefully that shifts the perspective for those who are listening. Just get your plan together. Keep working at it. Mute that inner critic because your success is inevitable. And you've said a few things that uh, I'm like, I could put that on a T-shirt. So we might have to talk about some licensing. And, and, <laughs> I already and have a T-shirt that says success is inevitable. Also wearing one that says hire black women. So I beat you to it. <laughs> Boom. One, I love that too. It's a good segue to tell people uh, where to find you around the web and where they can cop all that gear, which is also within where they can find you around the web. Yes, yes, yes. You can go to yourcareergirl.com. And if you are on social media, I am your career girl everywhere, except for Twitter. They won't let me be great. So I'm your career girl underscore on Twitter. Um, and I just recently joined Clubhouse. I don't know if I'm gonna be there long, but I'm at yeah, Dorian. It's a time suck. It's a time. It's, it's such <laughs> it's a time suck. I just don't get it. I don't get it. Like, what are we doing? Is this a podcast? I don't understand. Um, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. But I'm at Dorian on Clubhouse right for, for now. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, your career girl everywhere. I love it. And so thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. I hope people get a lot out of this one. Thank you for having me. Man, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Dorian as much as I did. And I said it during the episode, but she was really speaking my language. You have not because you ask not. 
and success is inevitable. These are two phrases that I'm probably going to take with me through 2021 and beyond, and I hope you're going to do the same. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share because the more people we reach, the more people we help. And I say we because we're all in this together. And there's probably someone in your network who needs this word today. There's probably a neighbor. So don't deprive them of this audio goodness. Go get on it. I'd also love to know what stuck with you from today's conversation. So hit me up on Twitter at PayBalances and share your thoughts, anything that you're going to be putting into practice, any questions you might have, any contrary thoughts even, because you never know, you might hear your words shouted out on a future episode of the podcast. So thanks so much for listening. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. We'll see what craziness happens between now and then. Until then, be safe. I'm out. Peace.